Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, we're coming to you from uh, one of the best, fanciest, most prestigious, most expensive restaurants on planet Earth, uh, Le Bernardin. Uh, this place has four stars in the New York Times, three stars from Michelin. You cannot get any more stars, people. Um, and the man in charge of making sure this place maintains its standards and its reputation is Eric Repair. Not only is Eric one of the planet's best chefs, not only is, it, is he a TV host and author, but he's also, uh, as he describes himself, a practicing Buddhist. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for being with us. I've been here before a few times. Uh, I don't want to brag. I've been here a few times, mostly for lunch because I'm, I'm, I'm cheap. Um, <laughs> but the food is, like, crazily delicious. You are Thank doing you so something much. right. That Appreciate salmon it. thing you bring out at the beginning. Oh, yes. I could, I could subsist That's on that alone. That's a signature canapé. When you, when you come, it's convivial, and it's to welcome you and make you at ease. And, uh, and it's delicious, yes. Absolutely delicious. I'm biased, <laughs> but I love it. So, so there are a million things I want to talk to you about. Oh, let me just say one thing, though. My only beef with you is one time I came here and you made me put a blazer on. I was dumb enough to yes, come. Yes, we ask. This is a formal place. We ask, well, we ask people to wear jackets. Yes. Because, not necessarily for us, per se, but a lot of the other tables complain when really? someone doesn't wear a jacket. Um, what you have to realize is that Le Bernardin caters for everyone, of course. And we have people who come f- uh, for business. For, we have foodies, who, people who come for anniversaries, uh, celebra- they celebrate. Um, the ladies dress well. Very often, the gentlemen dress well for the ladies. And then when they see someone coming with a T-shirt, and, and they're like, oh, what is that? You know, I'm here to celebrate, and, and you're basically disrespecting that clientele. Uh, and they complain to us. Interesting. interesting. So we, we don't ask people to have a tie, but a jacket. No, I, I learned my lesson every time I've come <laughs> back after that. And we have, I have, we have jackets for No, for you brought me a very nice blazer, yeah. I, it was it was a little big. I'm hard to fit because I'm a small man. Um, but you can't show up like I'm dressed. Our listeners won't know this, but the viewers will know that uh, I'm just wearing a regular shirt. You can't show up like this. You gotta you gotta have no. A you can eat in the lounge without jacket. Yeah, the lounge is much more casual and it's fine. But inside the dining room, jacket. And if you wear a t-shirt, you can eat out back. Out of the dumpster. With a T-shirt, you, know, like you can yeah. eat in a lounge. It's <laughs> oh, okay. really? Well, if you have a T-shirt, I mean, it, it all depends. You know, I mean, the dress code is very difficult because it's very subjective. Yeah. And some people think that coming with shorts and flip-flops and a T-shirt is okay. When you, you say, you know, dress in good taste. Um. <laughs> I mean, I, I, get, I see where you're coming from. This is a vastly off topic, but since we're on it, I see you're running one of the best restaurants in the world. It really has I, – I, that's you. not an overstatement. This is the reputation um, and deserved. And so you want to have a certain aesthetic. Yes. Um, I mean, the idea of fine dining is to create an experience. Today, fine dining is not just about nourishing people with great food. It's about creating an, an experience that is very unique to the place. So Le Bernardin, and being well-dressed is part of that experience. So um, now that I've taken you down this <laughs> tributary, uh, let, let's talk about Buddhism. You describe yourself as a Buddhist. How did that yes. happen? Well, when I was leaving France in 1989... Um, you were leaving France to come to I was to leaving States. France to come to America. I, I found a book at the airport that was talking about Tibet and... It had a little bit of Buddhist uh, theories in that book that inspired me a lot um, during my trip. I, I, I had to read for eight hours. By the way, I read that you were actually looking for a playboy and you ended up <laughs> taking the book about Tibet. Is that true? It's true. <laughs> I, had, I had enough money to buy playboy for the interview because they're great. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Or for the articles. Or, or, the, uh, <laughs> or, the, or the book. And after hesitating a lot... Finally, at the last second, I took the book. That was the beginning. Then I called my mother in France and I said, please send me some books about Tibet or whatever you find. And I read the speech of acceptance of His Holiness the Dalai Lama when he got the Nobel Prize for peace. Uh, That inspired me a lot. And then it has been a slow process, but um, 
I like the spirituality of Buddhism. I like the fact that it can be also um, proven, the theories of Buddhism can be proven in a secular way, in a scientific way. Um, it's something that speaks to me and, and, and a great inspiration in my life today. And I'm, I'm a practitioner. I have actually a, a Nepalese monk who comes once a week to my house. Wow. Um, and I, I practice every morning um, and uh, with the rituals and meditations. And then obviously I try to apply the principles of Buddhism into my life. I'm not trying to convert anyone at Le Bernardin uh, or in a kitchen, but I try to um, inspire the cooks to do the right thing, finding secular ways. So there are a million things in, in what you just said that I want to ask you more about, but okay. let me just go back to the moment in, in, uh, on the plane. You're, you're leaving your life behind in France, and you're coming to the U.S. to start as a young chef. Yeah. And something in that Tibet, in that book about Tibet speaks to you. Can you give me a sense of what it was that turned the lights on for you? Yes. It's, first of all, Tibet has been a very close country before the invasion of China, and we didn't know much about Tibet. Uh, the the Western world didn't know too much about Tibet. Then, as we know, China invaded Tibet um, and annexed Tibet to China. To, and to the, today, uh, Tibet is, is a province of China. Um, and I was fascinated by the lifestyle of the Tibetan people in the Himalayas. Uh, I was in, in that book. I was fascinated by um, how important um, the monasteries are in the life of Tibetan people, how, how much the spirituality is passing from generation to, through, to generations. Um, and and uh, I like the idea of the, I mean, I, I like the idea that they had the Dalai Lama who was someone highly respected and, and, and loved and basically this kind of like a beloved king who was also uh, wearing the, the robe of a monk. Um, it's a lot of things that I, I was interested because I think I am a spiritual person. I know today I am a spiritual person. At that time, um, I was born Catholic. Um, Catholicism didn't answer my questions. And I was not happy with Catholicism. Now, I'm not criticizing that religion at all. Uh, I believe all major religions have the same goal, which is to make people better people and, and potentially um, bring us to enlightenment. But Catholicism didn't speak to me. So, and I was young and I was curious and I wanted to, I wanted to become a better person. I was an angry, angry kind of teenager, old, old teenager. Um, I wanted to be at peace. Uh, I wanted to find a way. I wanted to find guidance in life. And, and Buddhism did that to me. Did you become a Buddhist right away, or was it a process? It was a long process, because um, I remember really starting to go to the teachings of His Holiness uh, in New York and, and having a collection of books that I didn't really understand well in the late 90s. So it took 10 years of making a lot of mistakes, because uh, in Buddhism there's no beginning and end. It's hard to grasp the philosophy like that when you don't have guidance. And I remember um, when His Holiness was teaching at the Beacon Theater. The Beacon Theater, yeah. Um, well, sometimes he does it at the Radio City Hall, mm -hmm. sometimes the Beacon Theater, mostly in New York. Um, I had the best nap in my life. <laughs> I didn't understand anything. <laughs> I mean, after five minutes, I was like, scratching my head, and I thought I, I knew a little bit about Buddhism. I was like, I have knowledge. I'm going to be comfortable in that room with 5,000 people. Nothing. I was lost. And um, I was with a friend. And, and actually, last year, he taught again. It was at Radio City Hall. And I was so proud, in a, in a good way, to understand everything, almost, <laughs> almost everything he was talking about, especially some topics that are very difficult to comprehend, um, like the theory of emptiness. Um, we can talk hours about just the theory of emptiness, mm -hmm. uh, that everything is related. Uh, basically, everything is one. 
it's no um, whatever you conceive as a glass is not really a glass and I can confuse you more. <laughs> I, I, mean, I think there's, there's so much there, and you can argue about emptiness. And uh, Yeah. Well, you can argue uh, to a certain degree, because today science, um, especially quantum physics, is making the... Is, it's basically um, confirming the theory of emptiness coming from a spiritual, religious point of view. The basic theory of... The, the, Emptiness, just just for the listeners and viewers who may not know anything about this, but emptiness, I'm going to take a shot at this, and I may fail. But the, the basic theory is that uh, everything is empty of some sort of pure essence. In other words, there is no Eric, some morsel of Eric in your brain somewhere. And this glass, it may look solid to you, but if you look closely, it's um, made up of spinning molecules and yes. spinning uh, yes. uh, all sorts of subatomic particles, et cetera, et yes. cetera. So everything can be broken down into yes. far, li- smaller and smaller parts. Yes. Uh, so we walk around, where this the rubber hits the road on this is we walk around thinking that there is some little Dan in here, some little Eric up in, in your head, and that actually can be the source of a lot of our suffering, of all of our greed well, it, and it our is, hatred, definitely. et cetera, et cetera. For sure, yes. You, you, you nailed it. Okay, yeah. cool, thank and you. And also the, the interpretation of the glass. You, I may think this glass of water is beautiful, and you may think this glass of water is ugly, and someone else may think this glass of water could be a good weapon to throw at someone. And so you interpret it the, the way you want, but ultimately this glass of water is made of sand that has been blown in a factory by people and so on. And... and um, the water is made of molecules, like you, you uh, mentioned, and it's made of atoms. And in between the atoms, it's some huge spaces. And the smallest particle that today we have been able to, to um, identify scientifically uh, is called quarks. And quarks is very interesting because it, it is matter, but if you observe it, it becomes radio wave. Right. And that... Um, it's very interesting because you can basically create your path. So it means the, the, the takeaway really is that nothing is as solid as it seems. Exactly. And, and nothing has an intrinsic reality. I think you say intrinsic. When it oh, ed- intrinsic reality. Intrinsic, yes. yeah, intrinsic yeah. reality. Nothing exists by itself. It's all related. It's all, ultimately, it all, it's all one. You see the water, for instance. Yeah. You don't see the cloud. But it was a cloud that created rain that fell on the ground and that was filtered and ended up in some ways in your glass. So that quantity of water, it's, it's what, what you see is not really what it is exactly. It's, it's the cloud and it's everything else. So it's all one. It's all related, including ourselves. You're making me thirsty. Um, but <laughs> how, how, how does this... Uh, how does emptiness impact the way you actually live? Well, because when you start to understand emptiness, suddenly you detach yourself and have less desires and, and attachment. Um, and as we know, attachment and desire are creating trouble in, 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 in us, for us. Like, let's suppose you... You love your Ferrari so much. Let's suppose you have a Ferrari. Not but, true. So I only can afford lunch at Le Bernardin, <laughs> so there's no Ferrari. But let's suppose someone has a Ferrari, and he loves his Ferrari, and he thinks that Ferrari is bringing him happiness, and, or he's about to buy the Ferrari, and he's like, that's going to bring me so much happiness. I'm going to have so much fun. It's going to be amazing. Let's suppose he buys it, and five minutes later, he crashes in a wall. Well, suddenly, he's going to have a terrible, terrible sadness, probably cry and, 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 and be very unhappy. Uh, so emptiness, when you, when you understand emptiness, suddenly you, you basically um, detach yourself. Um, even with a family, it doesn't mean you cannot love your son dearly and your wife and, and, and your family dearly, but you detach yourself a little bit. Because if you too attach, you know down the line it's going it's to create uh, pain. And life... Uh, in Buddhism, as, uh, is pain. We live in samsara. Samsara is the cycle of um, death and life. And the idea is to free yourself from that basically cage made of four elements. 
which is the fire and the water and the wind and the matter. So when you understand emptiness, you also understand that compassion is very important, to be compassionate with people and, and all sentient beings. It, it just changed the way you see events coming at you in your life and, and the way you are surrounded. And it brings a certain peace of mind and it develops for some reason an act of compassion. And compassion is a word that is very strange for Westerners like, like us. You say, I love something, but you will never say, I compassion something. Mm. It's not in our vocabulary, really. But compassion is basically being sensitive to the pain of other sentient beings and giving love. So basically, you take the pain and you give love. You can do that uh, in meditation, which is an exercise uh, that prepares you to do that in real, in real, what I call real life is, is when you interact with other sentient beings. So the, a, lot of, a lot to understand intellectually, but as you said, in order to, uh, in order to allow it to have a visceral impact, you've got to do this thing called meditation, or you probably should do this thing called meditation. When did you start meditating uh, in, within this chronology that we've been discussing? How long after you bought that book in Tibet? I started to meditate in the mid-'90s, and it was very difficult. Uh, you have two types of meditation, samatha and vipassana. So one of them, we can, so we're not going to use the Sanskrit word. One of them will be um, single point meditation. Samatha, concentration meditation. Yeah, yes. concentration. So that uh, basically is an exercise that f- helps your brain to stop thinking in the future or in the past. Mm-hmm. It's basically stopping the engine of the car and creates um, relaxation when, when you, after practice. Um, creates uh, the ability to concentrate uh, and and makes you more at peace uh, for some reason. The other one, it's basically guided meditation where you visualize. So you can visualize, for instance, um, let's go. Let, let's let's suppose that you have anger issues or jealousy issues. So the anger could be visualized as a dark cloud. And then suddenly out of your brain comes a beam and you destroy the dark, dark cloud. This is what you're doing in your meditation. In your meditation. You can do that. And by practicing like that and doing that, and do the, do, I'm giving you a very simple exercise. But by going further and further, you actually create for yourself uh, the qualities to fight those those challenges like anger for instance just in the simple exercise so i've done some meditation but not uh um not this kind so just help me understand how visualizing the anger as a dark cloud and then and then uh so then let's suppose you are in a situation when where you are about to become angry something is frustrating you first of all if you understand emptiness you understand it's not exactly what you think it is. And then if you have been able in meditation to destroy that anger, you can apply it in, at the same time. Like let's suppose you annoy me now and I'm like about to Somehow this lose doesn't it. seem theoretical. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but let's suppose you're annoying okay. now, right? And, and I'm I, like my blood pressure is going up and I'm about to explode. Like when I was challenging the dress code, for example? <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, but I may very well say, this is not real the way I perceive it. And all that anger that I have in me, I'm destroying it as now. As I talk to you, I visualize it and I'm like, I'm, I'm not going to get angry. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be at peace and I'm going to let you do what you do. And then I'm going to, uh, as a Buddhist, I will think that you're giving me the opportunity actually to act properly and to accumulate virtues. Right. I mean, the Dalai Lama talks about I mean, the Dalai Lama who's had, you know, whose country was invaded and uh, yeah. has a lot of reason, um, many believe, to be angry at the Chinese, for example, has talked about 
the value of having an enemy because they're your greatest teacher. Well, if you have no challenge, you cannot basically uh, progress. You need challenges in life to be able to be tested. And when you pass the test, you become a better person. So His Holiness considered the Chinese who have invaded his country, who, have, who are still pressuring his, his people, uh, the Tibetan community, he, con- he considers them brothers and sisters, and he has a lot of compassion toward them. Of course, he's working to, to, to make sure that the Tibetan people are not pros- prosecuted over there and, and, and they live happily and so on. But he's, he's thinking like that, yes. So anger is a big part of the cooking profession, at least by <laughs> reputation. So if you walk into it's hot in the, in the kitchen, yeah. and, and I've read that you were the kind of guy who was like throwing plates once in a while, and you, you studied under uh, Joel Rubichon, is that? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, um, and I understand he kind of yelled at you once in a while. And, um, Although so he, was not, he was not someone, he was not a screamer, and he was oh, not okay. violent. So okay. it, at that time, it was uh, common practice in kitchens to see plates flying and pots and pans and being beat, beat up um, in the shoulders or kicked in the butt or screamed at. Joel Robuchon was different, but he was still very rigorous and very demanding, and, and uh, we had to be extremely disciplined and, and excel at what we were doing. Did, so did meditation change the way you operate in a, in a kitchen? Yes, absolutely. I do not... Uh, I do not recall the last time I screamed in my kitchen. Not like I have a bad memory. <laughs> I mean, it's not that good. But <laughs> um, And the way I, uh, I tackle the challenges and the way I, uh, I interact with the staff, uh, it's much different than when I started in, in, in 1991 at Le Bernardin. Um, I'm trying to... Um, share with them my knowledge. I try to inspire them. I try to correct their mistakes um, without getting angry. Okay, but we, as we do this interview, it's in the afternoon uh, on a Tuesday. Is mm-hmm. it Tuesday? It's Tuesday, right? I think so. Um, I don't know. And we've, yes. just, <coughs> we've just finished a lunch service. Yeah. You just finished a lunch service. What if one of the guys in the line, one of your sous chefs, made a sauce that tasted like crap, and you, you caught it on the way out? Yes. What would you do? I talk, if, if he's the highest sous chef in the kitchen, I talk directly to him. If not, I go to the highest um, sous chef and I explain to him that the other one made a mistake and it's really bad and we have to remake it or we have to find solutions to not serve it to the client. And I do that, I go to the highest um, ranking sous chef because... If I start to talk to the line cook, then I have to repeat it to another sous chef, then I have to repeat it to another sous chef. Then, so I have to repeat myself four times. By going straight to the top, I do it once, and then he's in charge of making sure that the, the message is um, distributed to the people in char- how, that's supposed you, to get the information. How do you do that without anger, though? Because I mean, you've, you've spent years building your reputation. Yeah. You've got these clients paying a lot of money. Yeah. And... Uh, if that bad sauce had made it yeah. to the floor, it would have been potentially damaging to all yeah. of that. Sometimes I'm frustrated. When I am frustrated, I may I may not be happy. Like I'm not a, like I said, I'm not a screamer, but I may I may be sarcastic when I'm addressing to you my critics. I may be uh, very irritated. But what I do after when the incident is has passed, I go back and I apologize on the front of everyone. I have no problem to apologize on the front of my staff for not behaving the proper way. And that I think, and I, I teach that to all the sous chefs, or whoever has responsibility in a restaurant has to do that. Uh, and I think it makes us stronger because being angry, it's a weakness. It's not a quality. Someone who's screaming and someone who's uh, violent is not someone who's stronger than someone who's not. It's someone who has issues and, and someone who has uh, not mastered uh, himself. Emotional unintelligence if you're just getting yeah. hijacked and screaming all the time. Yeah. So, so we, sh- we shouldn't be proud of chefs who are uh, screaming in their kitchen. And, and I'm always thinking about that TV show, 
Hell's Kitchen or Kitchen Nightmares and uh, that promote this behavior of screaming at people, insulting them and humiliating them, this is not something that um, should be on TV, actually. Uh, and, and it's sending the wrong mes message. We have to fight that. So are you a, a kind of a lonely voice for uh, calm and compassion in, in the kitchen? I, I hope not. Um, do, you, do you find that other top chefs I, you're I, taking your side I have on a lot of friends, chefs, who are who are thinking like me, but it's challenging. You know, it's it's challenging because a kitchen is not an environment that is easy. It's very humid. It's very hot. It's very tight. It's a lot of sharp objects. It's a lot. It's a lot of action. It's a lot of stress. Um, sometimes the the kitchen is designed to challenge you to stay calm. At Le Bernardin, we're lucky. We have a very big kitchen, a lot of staff, a lot of everything we need. So it takes a lot of stress from, from the staff. But some kitchens are very tiny, and, and the people in those kitchens are, are challenged because they have to serve 100 people with very little. Um, so sometimes the conditions are really, really um, conducive to become uh, a screamer or to lose it. So do you think... Do you have any hope that you could make some sort of cultural change uh, by speaking out against uh, I, the I screaming? believe I'm making some cultural change uh, uh, already when I talk to you, when I, in, in, when I have the opportunity in every interview to talk about that. Uh, when I am with Anthony Bourdain and, and we, have, we have done some shows together actually called Good and Evil, he always gives me the opportunity to talk. And I think um, I inspire people to at least think about it, say, oh, wow, it, maybe it's right. Maybe screaming and, and being uh, abusive is not the right way to manage. Maybe a good leader shouldn't be like that. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Well, let me talk about another part of handling stress and, and, and what, what kind of benefit you personally might derive from your meditation practice and your Buddhist, Buddhist uh, practice play. So you, so you, as I said before, you, you've had these seven stars, three from Michelin, four from, from uh, the New York Times, for, a, for decades now. And, and keeping that up, I would imagine, would be a source of stress every day. You never know when some critic is yeah. going to sneak back in here and, and you know, catch you on a bad day. So how do you – is that stressful and is meditation useful in reducing the stress? Well, it can be stressful. Uh, meditation definitely can be a weapon against that, that stress. Uh, again, if you attach to the stars, you know, and if you become obsessed with your stars, every morning you're going to wake up. And you're going to think about, you're going to brush your teeth and be like, and if I lose a star, what will happen? And if I lose, my way of, of dealing with that is that on the morning I'm thinking about my day, about what are we going to do today with the, the team? What are we doing in creativity? What are the challenges that I have to, to work on? Or what are the rewards today? Uh, uh, I'm thinking. I never think about the New York Times and the Michelin when I come to work. I think about how we are going to be able to create an experience for the guest, 
if yesterday was challenging, how can, how can we avoid another challenge uh, today? Um, I think about all of that, and, and therefore is no space to have stress about losing stars. Now, it's true that maybe the night before the, the, the New York Times comes out, if we're going to get the review, it's true that, yeah, I am attached a little bit to those stars. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, it's not an obsession that I have uh, year after year. Let me, let me try to get the, the flip side of that. Of, you have this peer group of top chefs. Um, uh-huh. And a lot of these, and they're mostly men, uh, they have empires, you know, restaurants yeah. all over the place. So I had uh, your friend, um, um, uh, why am I spacing out his name, Mario Batali. Uh, yes. On the show. We had him on the show a couple weeks ago. Uh, and he, this guy's got restaurants all over the place. Yes. And you, as far as I know, have this place and maybe a... One in Cayman Island. One in the Cayman Islands. Yeah. Okay, so you don't have an empire. Uh, you, no. Maybe this, we consider this place to be an empire, but you don't seem to have the expansionary impulse of a lot of your peers. And I tried. I tried. At one point, we had a restaurant in Philadelphia. We had Cayman. We had uh, Philadelphia, Washington, uh, of course, Le Bernardin. And um, it, didn't, it didn't satisfy me. It didn't make me happy. Uh, I was making money, of course. More money. Much more money than, than I make today. But... My lifestyle was not reward. I, I was not happy to be in a train or in a plane or to worry about um, the manager who's quitting or is the food good or not good. So I decided not to develop. And I said, you know, I have found my level of uh, contentment. I make enough money to live well. I'm very lucky. Uh, I have a good lifestyle. I want to see my, my son and my wife every day. How old is your son? 13 now. Um, or, or maybe every day. Sometimes <laughs> I, want, I need a break. <laughs> um, yeah, he's getting to that difficult age. Um, yeah. But anyway, I, I have time for myself, mostly on the morning, where I can do whatever I want, which is mostly uh, studying, meditation, reading, uh, whatever I want to do. Be lazy if I wish. Walk in Central Park. I see my family every day. Um, and I am with my team. And I'm mentoring my team very closely like an artisan. And this is what I am. I am an artisan. I'm not a business guy. Some chefs have the qualities of being artisans and business, business people. Some chefs love the idea of traveling the world all the time. And, and, and for them, I'm probably a very boring model. They don't, want, they don't want that. Um, ultimately, we are all different, right? And, and Mario has been able to um, create an empire, and he seems to be very happy and not overly stressed. And me, I'm different than Mario, but I'm very happy in, in this life. And I may not be able to retire ever but because I, I need money. <laughs> but I'm Okay. <laughs> Well, so okay, so as a, personally, as a, um, I evangelize for meditation. I try to get everybody excited about meditating, especially skeptics. And one of the one of the arguments you sometimes hear from Type A hard charging people about why they don't want to meditate is that they're worried it will make them lose their edge. Now, do you is is the story you just told, which I find personally quite inspiring. Do you think some skeptics would latch onto that and say, oh, well, this is what happens when you start meditating. You don't want to conquer the world anymore. But I have, why, do you, why do I want to conquer the world? I don't want to conquer the world. I want to make the best black bass in, in the kitchen downstairs with the team. And it's not about conquering the world. And I'm not thinking about I want to be the number one. I don't care about being the number one. It's about doing something that I have passion for and transmitting the knowledge and the passion to the people who are with me and making a living out of it. I don't need to be the number one in the world. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, look, and, and I, mean, know, I love that. I mean, I feel the and, same way. But. And, and if you are someone who really wants to conquer the world and create an empire, mm-hmm. and you can, in meditation, create that. You, uh, they call that, um, I don't remember the name now, 
transcendental meditation, right? So they have a mantra and they visualize what they want. Meditation, is, it's not necessarily religious. Meditation is almost like uh, going to the club, exercising for the muscles, yeah. but it's for the brain. Yes. So let's suppose you want to be creating the biggest empire of restaurants in the world. Well, of course, you have to work hard and you have to have the capabilities and you have to have a, a lot of components helping you, but the meditation can help you to do that. You visualize your empire. And you say your mantra, you visualize your empire. And, and I know some business people who are doing that every afternoon in their office. Um, they do transcendental meditation and they vis visualize the takeover of this hotel. And they visualize, visualize until it happens. You just don't have that urge? No. No, I don't. No. To me, I, I just want to be happy. We all want to be happy. I mean, don't get me wrong. This is the nature of human beings. And this is where we are all equals. Obviously, we want to refute suffering, and we all want to be happy. Um, but my way of being happy is a very simple way. It's a very humble way, in a sense. What does your daily practice look like now? I wake up. I do my uh, rituals. Rituals. Rituals, because I, so in my apartment, um, I have a meditation room. Yeah, and I've read that the cat knows not to go in there. Even the cats don't go there. Uh, <laughs> I have a meditation room slash shrine slash temple, basically. And I go in my, in my room and um, I, I say some mantras. Um, I light some incense and I light candles and I do some prayers and I study and I meditate. How long? It all depends. But most of the time it's about an hour to two hours. Now, if I have to do a TV show at 7 a.m., it's no meditation. <laughs> I'm going straight to the TV show. Or if I have, uh, if I'm, if I have some other things that are unusual... I will, I will change the, my schedule. Uh, but out of 365 days, it's probably 300 and something days that are like that. Going to my room, uh, meditating, um, studying, rituals, uh, recitation of mantras. What, when you talk about rituals, what, do you, what does that actually involve? Well, it's one ritual that... I do every morning. So first of all, I light the candles and, and, and um, light incense and, and do my prayers. And then is a ritual that I do every morning. I have seven bowls empty, and I fill them up with water, and I offer them to Shakyamuni Buddha. After that... It's, I do a, uh, it's called the seven-limb meditation. So you can do it physically, which I do every day, and then you can do it also in meditation if you can't physically do it. Let's suppose uh, you are traveling, you're in a hotel, you don't have your seven balls and a statue of Buddha, you do it mentally. Mm -hmm. um, after that, I do um, a confession of all my uh, bad deeds. Then I rejoice for all the good deeds that I have done. Then I ask to um, be lucky to have a long life and a good health to be able to practice bodhicitta uh, and, and potentially to become enlightened. Then I ask... Can you define bodhicitta, just so we know? Bodhicitta is when um, you acknowledge that we are all equals and you understand that everyone potentially in your life was your mother. And in, a, in, a, in a past life. In a past life. All, all sentient beings. This is, by the way, bodhicitta mind is specific to Mahayana and to a certain um, other schools of thoughts in Mahayana. Not all Mahayana believes in bodhicitta. So Mahayana is just a school of Buddhism, just to make clear. Yes, we have Theravada and Mahayana, which yeah. are two big schools of Buddhism. And inside those schools, you have many branches. Mm -hmm. Um, and Tibetan Buddhism is Vajrayana, but it's divided in four different schools again, major schools. So um, anyway, you acknowledge that even potentially, because we don't believe 
time exists the way we, we perceive it. We believe time is infinite. So potentially everyone could have been my mother and could have given me a lot of love and compassion. And therefore, I, I will practice and give love and compassion to all sentient beings that I encounter in my life. This is practicing bodhicitta. Thank you for that. And I, I, but I interrupted your flow, morning flow there that you were telling so, me Yes, yeah, so I asked uh, to, to have the privilege to have a long life and a uh, healthy life. Then I ask uh, for Buddha to stay in this world in different ways, um, to, to um, teach us. Uh, so it, Buddha will stay in this world to teach us and, and potentially help us to free ourselves from samsara. Uh, and ultimately, at the end, I offer my good karma from my previous life and this life to Buddha to distribute to all sentient beings that are in need. So this is a practice that is very religious. That, that, uh, it's something that I do every morning. And is there time there for... Um... And when, by the way, when I fill up the glasses of water, mm-hmm. I, I, I have a, a mantra, and basically right after that, I visualize giving Buddha a lot of offerings. Food, fruits, clothes, medicines, incense, whatever you wish to imagine. I'm, I'm visualizing that on the, front, on the front of him live. As if he were right there in the room. As if, if he was there in the room. And is all, all of what you described, is that a preliminary to, uh, to meditation or is that the meditation? It's, it's preliminary. It, this is the first thing that I do on the morning. And then you do a seated practice? Yes, and what, what is, when you do your seated practice, what does that practice consist of? It depends. I mean, it, it changes all the time. But I do a little bit of a single point meditation. So basically, if sometimes my back hurts, so I, I, I do not sit on the lotus position. I sit uh, comfortably on a chair. But if not, I, I sit on the lotus position because I believe it helps, the, the posture helps the energies in, in, in the body to circulate better. What I visualize is uh, when I inhale is the energy coming from the lower back, the lower back going up through the spine mm-hmm. and coming up here. And when I exhale, it goes back down. Some people uh, focus on inhaling and, and exhaling. But for me, it's, I, I focus on those energies. It's where I can be the most um, focused. And, and I do that sometimes it's five minutes, sometimes it's ten minutes, and sometimes it could be more, but I do not put my watch and, and look at the watch because it's no competition. I'm not comp- competing with anyone. Um, it's no winner, no loser. If I have a lot of thoughts and I'm distracted, I stop a little bit. If I have a couple of thoughts, I acknowledge them, and then I go back to my, to my focus. Then I do guided meditations, like I mentioned, an easy one for you. Compassion is a good meditation to do. You can visualize someone you love very, very much, someone who's very close to you, and take the pain. It's called tonglen, actually, in in, uh, Tibetan Buddhism. You visualize the pain, you absorb the pain, and you give love. And then you imagine someone that you don't really care about. And you do the same with that person. And then... At the end of the meditation, you can do that with 20 people, by the way, one, by one after the other. But at the end, you take someone that you really dislike, if it happens. Someone that you really, really potentially hate, if you have hatred in, in yourself, which you shouldn't. But someone that bothers you, and you do the same exercise. And you repeat it, and you repeat it, and you repeat it. Um, ultimately, you create inside a transformation in you that will help you to be compassionate towards sentient beings. Well, I think there's. I mean, I do this practice myself, and I think there's science that suggests that it really works. Yeah. You you were saying before that you do guided meditations. Do you, when you do you mean that you listen to somebody guiding you, or I have um, a teacher who comes. Is a is a geshe, which is like a, it's like a Tibetan PhD. Yes, it is. He's from Nepal. He's from Nepal. He's Tibetan and Nepalese, and he comes once a week in my house. I have also tapes of, of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and I have different uh, ways to get guided meditation. But one-on-one is very powerful. So when he comes, 
do you does he ask you to tell uh, him about your practice and he tells you where you're going wrong or or is it more um, just you do a no he's together? teaching me like for instance we can talk about the four noble truth and yes he may evaluate me and say what well, so let's talk about the four noble truth what do you what do you know about it those so, are the uh, buddha's principal pronouncements the four yes, noble truths acknowledging yeah. that in life it's suffering and suffering has an origin a root and that you can if you go to the root of suffering of that su specific suffering and and cut it which could be attachment you will not suffer but ultimately to free yourself from samsara you have to follow the path of Buddha. That's the eightfold path, yes. which is the fourth noble truth. It gets yes. very mathematical, but it makes a lot of sense. Well, yeah, the eight, eight, how you call it? Eightfold uh, uh, path. Yeah. path. It's, it's a wheel, right? That is designed and it's to help you to practice. So you have to believe, obviously, in a teaching and, and practice the teaching. And then when you have that education, you have to have good thoughts. Then you have to have a good speech, then good actions. Then to have a job that is not in conflict with the teachings. Like if you work for the mafia, I don't know if you can be Buddhist. <laughs> uh, uh, then you have to make the, the right uh, efforts every morning or every day in your life to become a better person. Then you have to develop concentration. And, and, that, and oh, before mindfulness, that, mindfulness. Yeah. Yes, mindfulness before concentration. So... How important is it to have this Nepalese monk dropping by once a week? Is that, does it's, that put your practice on the next level? Yes, of course. He's, um, he's helping me a lot. Uh, I, I, he's coming now to my house for about a year, about, about a year, and he has helped me a lot, yes. You, you, uh, you wrote a book recently, which I'm embarrassed to admit I, I haven't yet read because I just found out about it. But it's, an, it's a memoir, and it came out... Uh, it came out a couple of months ago. A couple of months ago. In June, yes. It's called 32 Yokes from My Mother's Table to Working the Line. And now I admit that I haven't read it, which, again, I'm not proud of. But you... Oh, that's okay. Well, <laughs> but I millions like, of people haven't read it. <laughs> but when I have a guest on, I, I pride myself on reading their actual books. So this is a, a, not a good um, exception to that rule. But in the book, I've read about the book. And you do talk about some painful incidents from your past in the book, uh, including your parents' divorce yes. and physical abuse from your stepfather uh -huh. and also being abused by a, a priest. Yep. Can you tell me a little bit about that and also whether yes. this practice has helped you in any way? Yes. Um, so I had a great life in the 70s uh, in Saint-Tropez, which, you know, Saint-Tropez, 70s, couples, it's a challenge. I see. So your your so my my parents were very very successful by our standards, very good looking, and and therefore um, it ended up in a divorce. I guess temptation was was too much at that time. My mother remarried. My father remarried. My stepfather was very abusive uh, in terms of like beating me and and verbally because I was. Uh, a very difficult child. I was at war with him. I ended up uh, going to a boarding school, a Catholic boarding school. I couldn't come back on a weekend uh, to my house all every weekend. I had to stay sometimes. So one priest uh, said to my mother, "You know, if you want, I can take him to see movies. I can take, you know, I I can take him outside the, sc the, the school. He can go walk in town and and." And so my mother said, yes, it's fine. So that Catholic uh, priest tried, obviously, to, um, not obviously, but he tried to, um, to abuse me sexually. Uh, and, I mean, then I, my mother came and, and, and I was uh, out of that school. Uh, and then I, my, my life was still not easy. Uh, I had other challenges. But I ended up being a very angry teenager that led into a very um, angry young man and um, with different issues as well linked to anger. And, and uh, ultimately I had, I think, a certain spirituality in me. And until I discovered Buddhism, I was kind of lost. Lost in a sense that I was trying to be a good person and I couldn't succeed at the level of where I want it to be. And Buddhism was, for me, um, a revelation. 
We're almost done. I'm sensitive to the fact that I'm holding you back from, from the bustling operation uh, beneath us down there. That's a vacation, stairs. actually. I'm having an hour <laughs> vacation. Uh, are there things that I should have asked you about that I didn't ask you about? Are there other things you want to talk about before I let you go? No, I think I mentioned um, during, during our discussion that I'm not trying to convert everyone to Buddhism. And again, I, I want to reiterate that I'm really trying to be, I am in a position of leadership. Therefore, I'm trying to educate people around me who are working with me um, to do the right thing in a very secular way. And I think this is very important, not to try to convert people. Have you had anybody complain? No, nobody complained because I do not uh, uh, try to convert them. I, I, I never do that. But I apply the good principles. I mean, I try to apply the good principles the entire day. And w what I do actually is that on the morning, I look at myself in the mirror and I'm like, okay, I'm going to have a day with challenges. And today I'm going to be the best I can. And let's see if tonight I will be happy when I look at myself in the mirror. Uh, it's always a little bit of a discrepancy. Mm. <laughs> I know the feelings. Yeah. I know the feeling. But the, as you said before, the trick is uh, where there are discrepancies, you can just be better at going back and apologizing. Yes, absolutely. It's been a pleasure to sit and talk with you, Chef. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure, too. Okay, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please make sure to uh, subscribe, rate us. And uh, if you want to suggest topics we should cover or guests uh, we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. I also want to thank heartily the people who produce this podcast and really do pretty much all the work. Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, Andrew Kalb, Steve Jones, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. Uh, I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on stage tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.